see David at this time under a good bit of stress. I mean, constantly being chased all over the uh, Judean countryside by Saul, uh, having many close calls, at least from a human standpoint, that were very difficult for him. And uh, yet he exercises incredible self-restraint in that he refuses to uh, take advantage of his uh, superior position in the cave. He could have killed Saul very easily, and he refuses to do that, and so it's just very impressive to see uh, uh, David's self-control in that and his uh, refusal to uh, take revenge for himself. Chapter 25, would somebody read 1 to 13? Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him, and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paris. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. That David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, my young, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. When Nabal answered David's servants, and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Should I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, Each of you girded on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. Two important deaths in this chapter. <laughs> the beginning, Samuel dies and is buried. That's the end of an era. Uh, would have had impact in various ways, some of which we'll see later on in the story. And then he describes this man. It's interesting in verse 2, before we ever learn the name of this man, what do we learn about him? He's rich. That's really more important than his name for him. He's a rich man, 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. There's a lot of comparisons between Nabal and Saul, they have the same character, they meet uh, both a rather uh, dishonorable end. And uh, the 3,000 sheep of Nabal reminds you of what? Of Saul. Yeah, he had 3,000 men in his army. And uh, what was this man's name? <coughs> Nabal. And he's just, uh, Nabal, uh, it really <coughs> describes him. He is a, a foolish man. But he's married to a very wonderful wife. You see that every once in a while. 
you wonder how in the world, you know, a man like this managed to land an Abigail, uh, or what, what went behind that. But she was a very fine woman, but he was not. And he was uh, shearing the sheep, and this would be a festive occasion, a prosperous occasion for him. And David and his, his men have actually uh, been protecting the sheep. They haven't been letting anybody get in to, to disturb uh, Nabal's possessions or anything like that. And so David sends servants to Nabal at this sheep shearing time, asking to uh, receive some gifts for the protection that he's offered. And instead of appreciating that, uh, providing gifts or whatever, what does Nabal say? Yeah, who's David? You know, now there's there are a lot of servants today breaking away from their masters. That's just a, a total insult. You know, he must be some runaway slave. I don't know anything about it. And we'll learn later that uh, the servants disloyal to their master were Nabal's, but that's another story. Um, and he says in verse 11, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers? What do you see in Nabal? Pride. Gotta remind you of that rich fool in Luke 12, doesn't it? It's all my, my, my. He does not recognize the Lord as the source of this. It's as if he produced all of this with his own power. And so the servants come back to David. Now, I want you to think about David's situation. I don't think David was asking for help from Nabal just because David wanted to get rich or something like that. Undoubtedly, he's under a lot of pressure to constantly provide adequate food and things like that for all these men that are dependent on him. That, that would be a very stressful thing for him. And so it would really be helpful were Nabal to have provided something in return for what David's been doing for him. When Nabal refuses, the messengers come back and tell David that. What happens? What does David say? Hey, all you arm yourselves. We're on the march. That's kind of interesting. Does this strike you as David-like? Why not? It's like Saul. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Taking revenge. Even worse than Saul, really. But, but David had refused to take revenge against Saul, a man who'd done a lot more to try to hurt him than Nabal had. Nabal was a jerk. But, but Saul had been out to kill him. But yet he restrains himself with Saul and tries to take vengeance against Nabal. You could be kind of pondering that a little bit. I think that's worth uh, thinking about some more as we go through this. Comments or questions to this point? Chuck? I would just add, I mean, in this situation, not only is uh, Nabal offending David by not giving him stuff, he's offending David's men. So yeah, you're right. may not just be on his Good point. Just There's a significance in... Uh, him having a bunch of young men going out and, and doing important work for him because he started as a real young man and he he doesn't you know not trust young men as far as you know knowing that they can do things and because it says young men several times you know right good now. point I thought about that but good point yeah Steve as asking this question like who is David who's the son of Jesse is belittling David surely he knows about David well yes. 
I think it's like that. Oh, I don't know. Who's that? But yeah, you wouldn't know who it was. I agree. But it's kind of just trying to put it down. All right, let's do this number. And we have some people moving up and moving over. That'll make it a whole lot easier. There's a lot of places over here. I realize there's kind of some long rows and uh, not a whole lot of space in between them, but uh, you're young. So the more that can move up or over is helpful. Right. Is he making a reference to him like breaking away from soul? I suspect so. Yeah, I suspect so. Matthew? Um, so David's not necessarily right in what he's about to do. I don't think he's right at all. It's, it's never right to take vengeance. Clearly, Nabal wronged David, but it's not up to David to take that into his own hands to try to execute vengeance. I thought it might be a cultural thing, like that was common for, like, hey, you should give me some gifts. I think it may have been, yes. I, I think the fact that David and his men had protected Saul, they, or uh, protected Nabal, I, I think they've earned you know, some kind of recognition monetarily, and I think especially the sheep shearing, where it may have been more common to give gifts and to share some of the wealth. So I think, yes, that would be cultural, but even though he's doing what's not cultural, he's insulting David, and in a sense wronging him, it's still not right for David to take revenge. Tim? Uh, upon the death of Samuel, who finished his book? Well, obviously, Samuel did not write the books of Samuel. I don't know who did. Uh, him. Um, as he goes through here, it changes, <coughs> transitions from verse 6. He comes, David comes up to him and he's like, peace, peace, peace. He says the word three times in verse 6. And he's being nice, but then when um, Nabal, he has a bad return towards him, a bad... Um, Applied. Then in verse 13, he says, sword, 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 in that verse. And I think that kind of represents our lives with God. God, God came to us, and he was like, peace, peace, peace. He was being gracious and kind. But then, when we reject him, when we turn against him, then he brings the sword to us, and he will um, punish us for our own. Okay. I hadn't noticed that, but that's helpful. <coughs> yeah. I've always... Because you can always describe David as a very passionate guy. I mean, he was always going all the way. Whichever, it may have been wrong in the direction, but he was he was going all the way, each, each way he was going. And he himself being a warrior, I mean, he wouldn't necessarily call David a diplomat so much in the way he handled situations sometimes. He could be very kind and stuff, but sometimes he would just, I'm going all out on this, this one thing. He was very intense, you know, but he has exercised restraint with Saul just before this, so that in itself is kind of a, a shock. Um, we'll talk more about that. See where this goes. Uh, 14 to 31. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we were with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep 
already prepared five seals of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, No one before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow ha has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Ab Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down on from her donkey and fell before David in her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his, at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has returned you from blood and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make, make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of all the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hallow of a sling. And when the Lord had, has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pains of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Okay, so David is on the warpath, taking four of his 600 men, one of his 600, to uh, go to war against Nabal. And what happens? Yes, how does Abigail know about this? Yeah, Nabal's servants come and tell her what's happened. They explain to her that David and his men have been very good to them. That they offered for them round-the-clock protection against uh, thieves and, and uh, marauders and things like that. And, uh, and they said, you, you know what Nabal is like. You can't say anything to him. And Abigail, understanding what's happened, she rushes to intercede. She gets a bunch of provisions together, and she comes to David. 
And David tells her why he's about to kill Nabal. You know, he says in verse 21, In vain I guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. And he basically takes an oath before God that he's not going to leave one male alive of all that belongs to Nabal. So David is furious. And he's determined he's going to take revenge against Nabal and his household. Now again, I ask the question, what happened to David? It's not only chapter 24 where David refuses to take revenge against Saul. Chapter 26 also. This story is sandwiched in between two stories that really show David controlling any spirit of revenge that he has. And so you're kind of scratching your head at this one. You know, what's going on with this? What happened? Right. Maybe he's so focused on, like, you know, he has to you know, respect Saul. He can't take revenge. He's forgetting about all the other interactions that he has. It's kind of like all he can think about. Yes, I think so. Yes. I think David is operating on a principle. His, his conscience, we, we said something last night about conscience. Chris made a good comment. But his conscience was trained by principles. And one of the principles was uh, you don't you don't presume anything on what God's behalf. You you go on what God teaches you. And uh, he was he knew that for him to presume that he could assault God's anointed would be a violation of that principle. Here apparently his principles have gotten a little bit muddied. Uh, you know I suppose it's it's still a, a sound principle that he shouldn't have taken revenge on this man, even though, as you put it, he is a jerk. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess maybe he just he reached a point where he, he thought he was justified in doing this. And Are we ever like that? You know, I, it seems to me like this is a lot like us in the sense that sometimes we get up for the big battle. You know, Saul's God's anointed. You know, he has really been persecuting David. David is very prepared, very focused. He is not to take revenge on the Lord's anointed. He's not going to do anything against Saul. But this more minor irritation, he just blows up. Have we ever done that? Have you ever been in a situation where maybe somebody really mistreating you and you're just very calm? Very patient, very controlled. And then one little thing somebody says or does, you just fly off the handle. You know, we're up for the big battles, but we fail to uh, be prepared for the smaller ones. Seth? It's like Peter. Uh, he was ready to, to fight, cut off the, uh, the high priest's <laughs> here, but his downfall was a little serving for Yeah, exactly. Yes, excellent <laughs> point. <coughs> Justin? It's possible that he could be taking all this anger and, and all this stress and everything that he's had with Saul kind of taking it out on Nabal. Could be. Yeah, it could be. It's good thought. Yeah. Uh, Terry. Well, what I see in this is that here we have an example of, and it's the same thing for us. You know, when we've done a good thing for somebody, he's done it. David's done a good thing. And now then to be treated like this, it's, it's, you see this later on in David when Nathan comes to him and he tells him, thou art the man, it's the sheep that he described. David is upset about that and wants to take care of that. And so we see that, again, here's something that he did that was good, 
And this is kind of, this is hard to take. Yes, yes, it's an outrage, right? I've heard sinful attitudes that we can have um, described as rats in your basement. You know, if you go banging around and clomping down the stairs really loud and give them lots of warning, they'll go hide. But when you catch them off guard, you'll find them. You know, catching them off guard didn't make the rats. You know, they were always there. But, you know, when we're not prepared and <coughs> really trying to be self-controlled. You know. So we've got to be watchful at all times. Well, don't you love what Abigail does here? You know, she says to David, look, let all the blame be on me. I'm sorry. Uh, and don't worry about Nabal. He lives down to his name. He's a worthless man. You know, and, and accept this gift. I'm so glad God restrained you from avenging innocent blood. She assumes that uh, he's already decided <coughs> excuse me, uh, against taking revenge. And... Uh, she, she says, you know, this is going to be such a blessing. When, when God brings you into the kingship, you're not going to feel guilty for having shed blood improperly. But she is just a, a, a master of, of tact, of just putting this in a way that is just so gentle and yet persuasive. And it's, this is the longest speech, I believe, by a woman in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, just very, but very encouraging how she says that. She is everything Nabal was not. For as much of a jerk as he was, she is just so composed and so kind and so thoughtful. Patrick? Well, it probably had to be that way if she was married to Nabal. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder if this was the uh, only uh, mess he made that she had to clean up. Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, probably a, a good, uh, good technique to have for Mrs. Nabal. Other comments and thoughts on this? J.D.? Uh, this reminds me of Paul's kind of approach in Philemon, where he, he's assuming the best and assuming you'll do the best. And so it's not condescending, yeah, you'll probably mess up and you know, you'll, you'll regret this. It, it's, it's really kind of elevating in humility and uh, it's really useful. I, I feel like I need to learn how to talk to people this way to get them to do the right thing in an encouraging sort of way as opposed to a demeaning sort of way. Definitely. You see Paul a lot of times in his letter thanking God and revealing that he thanks God for the good qualities in the brethren. Certainly what he said to Philemon is that people tend to live up or down to our expectations. I think it's very important in raising children. You know, some parents have this bad habit of, of just running their kids down. They talk to other people and their kids hearing and you know they just, they, oh my kids immature, my kids irresponsible, my kids this, my kids that. Well the kid learns what he is. You know as opposed to parents who are not naive but they are expecting and assuming the best. They are imagining what they want in their children. Often children will rise to the expectations that their parents have. And, and, and I think that's exactly what Abigail is doing. She is assuming that David has the kind of heart and character that he has. That he will be responsive to her request because he wouldn't want to have a guilty conscience for having shed blood improperly. And uh, her respecting David that much, thinking the best of him, makes it easier for David to live up to that. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, uh, Josh. Yeah, 
I really back what J.D. was saying about seeing a parallel here with Paul and Philemon's situation, just because I see the servants running to Abigail, knowing that she's the kind of person that they can trust to take care of this situation. And then you see Abigail handling it much like Paul does. I think that's really powerful. Definitely. Good point. Yes. I find it interesting how often the word servant is used or in her speech. Um, Abigail was the wife of a very rich man, and she had a high position. But she still came to David, and she fell on her face before him like a servant. And even though she was in a high position, she still saw herself as a servant before him. And I think sometimes we need to think about our position in life and still realize that we need to be a servant to others. Great point. Yes, that's excellent. Other thoughts, John? Uh, you might compare her to Moses, where she assumes the blame that belongs to another. And perhaps one of the most important things she does is she gets David to think about God again, where his thinking had been, oh, you might say he had typical male thinking. He was hungry. He'd had his manhood challenged, and he responded inappropriately. But once she directed his thinking back to God, then he, he kind of woke up. Excellent point. Yes, that's a very good point. Other thoughts? Yes. Quick question. She seems to know a lot about how David's supposed to come into the kingdom. Would you say this is something that God has revealed to her, or is maybe this common knowledge by now that he's going to be king? Well, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised it's common knowledge. Jonathan knows it. Saul knows it. And it's hard to imagine everybody isn't starting to see it. I mean, David is certainly acting more like a king than what Saul was. Uh, so, I mean, I would think she could have known this without any special revelation. Nathan? I was going to say, if we want to not be worthless, we need to respond to rebuke like David does and not like Nabal. That's exactly right. Amen. We're all going to need that sometimes, Gammon. So, Nabal be saying, who is David in the sense like, this isn't my king, I don't, I don't recognize him as king? Well, of course, he wasn't acting king yet. But I think it's just like, just total disdain. Oh, David, who's David? I, I, I hear there's a lot of runaway slaves around. <laughs> you know, just, just to put that. And it, you know, it's, it's one thing to refuse to give him the supplies, money, whatever, but he just adds insult to injury. And, uh, you know, it seems to almost relish the idea that he gets to <coughs> insult David. I just can't help but feel uh, sorrow for, not sorrow, but pity for Nabal. I mean, verse 17, um, when the servant's talking to uh, Abigail, and therefore don't consider what you should do for evil is plotting against our master and against his all household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to. I mean, if this servants are speaking to his wife about how worthless he is, you know it's pretty bad in the household. Everyone knows he's a fool. And his own wife talks about him being a worthless fellow to David. So, isn't that the way self-indulgent, selfish, prideful people are? You know, you start acting like a navel and pretty soon everybody knows that's the way you are. You know, I don't care how rich you are, how high your position is, when you act like this, eventually even your servants realize you're worthless and nobody can talk to you. When you are humble, when you are Abigail, uh, you do leave a legacy that people will remember. Um, 
whereas Naval and Saul are trying to leave a legacy, making a name for themselves. Where, and they do have a legacy, but it's not favorable at all. Um, you think of the people like the, the rich young ruler, the man who tore down his barns and built bigger barns, the rich man Lazarus. We don't even have a clue who their name was. They, they were trying to leave themselves a legacy, and we don't even know who they were. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Uh, Steve. It's interesting to see David incurring God's name like Saul often does, and you know, vowing to destroy yes. Nabal. But when he comes to his senses, unlike Saul, who keeps carrying out his rash vows, he comes to his senses and repents of the vow um, instead of just sinning and, and taking out Nabal. It's also interesting just how uh, David continues to surround himself with really good people. I mean, Jonathan's not going to be around for too much longer, but he's going to end up putting himself to Abigail. So. Yes, David does have an eye for people who are respectable. Well, let's see what's happened here. And what happens here? 32 to 38. Here, one more thing. Yes. Uh, you talked about Abigail's tact, but she had obviously planned some of the things she was going to be saying to be most conducive to David listening to her. And notice in verse 29 <laughs> how he uses the reference to God's, uh, David's enemies and God using them as a, as with a sling. And what would that have made David think about? And what would have made him think about how God delivered him against the lion? Okay, great point. Thank you. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that's exactly right. Good point. All right, 32 to 38. And David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you have hurry to come to meet me, surely not. By morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Now I have to go with Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was, was merry with him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Well, think about how David could have reacted to what Abigail said. You know, David could have said, uh, Nabal deserves this. I'm going to kill him, you know, no matter what. I mean, he could have just rejected, basically, the point of her speech. He could have said, you know, you're a wonderful woman and all that, but you don't understand how bad he's hurt me or whatever. Or he could have said, Abigail, you are awesome, man. That's such a wonderful speech. You know, I'll, I'll do whatever you say. And he could have really praised her. He doesn't do either one of those. What does David do? He praises God for having kept him from bloodshed and vengeance. He sees the Lord who has restrained him. So he praises God when he hears what Abigail says. He sees that this is God's hand in his life keeping him back from doing the wrong thing. That's cool. That's exactly what we should be doing. Instead of falling all over ourselves 
to tell somebody how wonderful they are and how wise and intelligent what they said was. We need to recognize that if they said something that's, that's helpful and spiritual and edifying to us, that's the Lord. You don't praise the axe, you praise the guy who uses the axe. You don't praise Abigail, you praise the Lord that sent Abigail, that gave her the words, and that used her for David's benefit. That, that habit of constantly seeing the hand of God in the blessings we receive. It's just excellent. And, and so David certainly does listen. He, he responds totally, but he responds with praising God for what God had done for him. Yes? I think it speaks a lot to the character of Abigail that after all this happens, she goes back and she respects her husband. Even, you know, despite what he is and what she knows that he is, she respects him enough to tell him everything that has transpired. It's, it's fascinating to see what happens. You know, she comes back, of course, we know Nabal's feasting, and uh, he's very drunk, and uh, so she really can't talk to him that night. Uh, but the next morning, uh, I suppose in mid-hangover, I don't know, um, she, she tells him these things. Now, you think about a Nabal and what she told him. I don't know what all she related, but what part of what she probably told him do you think would have had the biggest uh, negative impact on Nabal? Yes! Verse 18, she took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs. I think that's what Nabal just, you know, could not deal with. Um, she took various perishables and exactly five out of his 3,000 sheep, and that was just too much for him. <laughs> you know, he, he, just, he just had a stroke right there on the spot. You know, you know how materialistic people are. Maybe how we are. Man, you know, we have all this abundance. <coughs> and a very small setback just throws us into a, to a fit. You know, we just can't handle it. So it broke the budget. Uh, you know, he, he hadn't budgeted those five sheep for, uh, for uh, David. And uh, we, we just show so much our greed by how ardently we cling to everything we have. Often, we don't object so much about uh, eating those sheep. We just don't want anyone else to eat. It's not that we object to uh, enjoying our possessions, but they're our possessions. What would you do, guys, if your wife had given a few of your sheep away to, uh, to David? <laughs> would that, would that uh, give you a stroke? Uh, so, I mean, that's it for Nabal. His heart dies within him. He becomes like a stone. I guess he goes into a coma. And ten days later, he's gone. And uh, Nabal the fool is out of the way. Yes, Michael. Can we follow up that? One of the reasons he, his heart died within him was he, he told him 
exactly going behind him, how it wasn't smart, and she, she told him everything and how close he was to losing everything, including his life, because he, he probably thought like he maybe knew who David was, and he was bringing 400 <coughs> men to wipe him out, and how close he was. Might have been, but if he's like a typical man, he probably wouldn't have thought that would have bothered him. I don't know. Uh, he's, he's a pretty proud guy. Ariel? Um, this is just kind of interesting, but we mentioned how he said peace, peace, peace earlier, and then sword, 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 and now blessed, blessed, blessed. Okay, I hadn't seen that, so that's <laughs> good, too. Those triples. Justin? I think ultimately what fixes that attitude of Nabal and, and sometimes us as far as uh, really being... Uh, concerned about our stuff and how it's our stuff um, is we need to realize where it really came from and, and why we have it. Absolutely. Makes all the difference in the world when we see it as being God's. Jacob? Um, I, I think it speaks really well of Abigail that she didn't tell him when he was drunk. Like she could have told him everything that happened while he was drunk and he wasn't in his right mind and then everything would have been good. But she waited until he was sober so he would understand what she did. To tell them, and I think that's really well okay, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. Other comments? <coughs> yes, Jonathan. It, it's so difficult when we perceive that someone's done, done us an injury. It's with our pride to just swallow it and just let it go. But this is a good chapter to go to to remind ourselves that God's going to take care of it in the end. If we just swallow it, let it go, we'll deal with it. That's exactly right. Would you say that vengeance in itself is a bad thing? And the answer is no. Uh, should should uh, revenge be taken? Should, should people get what's coming to them? Well, yeah, justice ought to be done. It's not that, that that's a bad thing. It's that it's not our place. That's God's. He'll take care of it. And he does. If we'll let him do it, He'll do it the right way at the right time, maybe even more effectively than what we would. Yes? Um, I'm trying to figure out the best way to word this, but Abigail, in this particular instance, goes by the policy of better to ask forgiveness than permission. So how do we apply that today, especially with, you know, if we're dealing with spouses or, you know, members things like that? I don't know that I have an uh, intelligent thing to say about that. <coughs> Certainly, Abigail is uh, seeking to do the kind, wise, responsible things. She's seeking to restrain David from hurting Nabal. Um, I, but I don't know that I have anything more to say than that. Somebody got a good answer on that? Wouldn't she basically be the principle of obeying God rather than man right there? Perhaps, I, I mean, I'm not sure I would say she was disobedient to her husband in this. She was acting independently, I think. Okay. Other thoughts on this? Yes? This may be a strange comment, but um, I just see over and over that God uses his creation, our bodies, for his, for his works. And we've seen the tumors, and we've seen um, like him falling, like his heart dying, we see... Elijah's falling down dead, and as a nursing major, I'm just like, well, what's happening in your body, and how cool is that to think that he just took his heart and he just made it die, and so... Like, how great is our God to just use us? Like, how insignificant are we? Like, 
resurrection, and since we're so good now that we could like transplant hearts, and God is so in control of everything in our lives. Yeah, you definitely see that. Throughout the Bible, God is very much in control, and we do tend to very irrationally and pridefully see ourselves as almost invincible. You know, we can handle anything, you know, we'll just be tough or whatever. We are really nothing. You know, I mean, it's not only a rapidly moving piece of lead that can destroy us in an instant, but little bitty germs can kill us. You know, we, we have a hard time dealing with anything. Uh, and, and God can use any any instrument. He can bring us down, or He can raise us up. God's clearly the one who controls that. Uh, we've seen Saul and now, now David in verse thirty-two say that that God sent you to me. We saw Saul say that God has sent you. He's blessed me, and that type of thing, and attributes that to God. We see here that we know that it's God's will for Abigail to to come to David. Uh, how can we can we apply this to our lives when we know something's in God's will? I mean, can we walk up to some stranger and say, "God sent me to you to tell you about Him"? I mean, how how much can we apply something like that to, to our lives? Well, certainly in the broad sense, that's true. Yeah. God sent us into all the world to tell the gospel to every creature. So, in the broad sense, we can say that. Um, there may be, there's certainly some limitations on what we know about exactly what strings God pulls to get things to happen. But we know all good and perfect gifts come from God. We know the things through his word that are within his will. So it's appropriate for us to give credit to God for good and perfect things. Uh, you know, and you see that. I mean, Paul would thank God constantly, for example, for the spiritual growth of brethren. Well, Who's the source of all spiritual growth? It's God. And when it's, when it's something that we know is what God gives, our daily bread, we know God gives that. So when we have our daily bread, we thank God for it. Now, you know, we also see other principles in the Bible. We know that it's wrong to steal. So if somebody stole the God that got to get their food, we certainly don't give God the blame for their stealing to get it. I think we use biblical principles to show us what God does and what he does. And we give him credit for the things that we know that he does. Jake? Uh, that is an interesting contrast because in, in 1 Samuel 24, David does say in verse 10, you've seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And so it's almost like the, the Lord may present the situation. That doesn't tell us what the Lord's will is for you and how to act. So, you know, if we see a pie sitting out, the Lord may have brought that, but that doesn't give us the opportunity to steal it. <laughs> um, That's just a silly example, but um, you know, I think the Lord presents things. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, the Lord gives evil and good. Uh, and uh, it's still our responsibility to know what God's will is, how to respond in the situations we ever find ourselves in. Good point, Chris. And in the end, this is a narrative. This is a story, a, his, a history. It does not necessarily give us a right or wrong or a, uh, a commentary on every act that everybody does of whether or not it's approved by God or not. Sometimes we may be looking, it's kind of looking at a parable. You want to get the general meaning out of it and the idea of the thing, but we don't dissect each individual word and thing to say, oh, well, you know, we need to be like a seed or something because that's the, what the parable was. Right. Well, clearly when God tells us stories, we do not get a running commentary on, now this was wrong, this was right, this was sort of okay. 
The only way we can really see those things is either sometimes the story in itself will show us the consequences or whatever, and that will kind of show it to us, but basically we evaluate the actions of characters in the story by the principles we see in the Bible. And there's many times when bad people did God's will. Sure, and, and there's, there's sometimes when good people didn't. And there's many times that God blessed bad people. Definitely. There, so those, those even are not commentaries on whether or not they are actually doing the right thing. Sure. Sure. Some, yes, I agree with that. And sometimes there are things that we can see that are perhaps evils that flow from evil. But yes, I think the bottom line is, you know from what God's word says what's right and wrong. And so we, we see their actions as being right or wrong based upon those principles. We see, for example, that when David speaks blessing Abigail for what she did, those are the kinds of things that godly people do. That's what God would say to do, to give him thanks for all good things and so forth. And so we see that as being right. Um, but not just because David said that, but because that's the kind of thing that we see in other passages that God approves of. Yes, God? How, how come in the Bible we see a lot of people who have names that you know, kind of act, that their lives act out? Yeah, good question. Um, I wondered, I don't know, could it be that Nabal was sort of his nickname, you know, that <laughs> sort of became a Nabal after the fact because of his character? I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine a parent naming a child that. But, you know, uh, I, I, but beyond that, maybe the hand of God is in some of that. Uh, there certainly are a number of times when you see a correspondence between the, the name and the character of the person. Uh, but I don't, I don't have a better answer than that, John. Is it possible it originated with him? You know, at that point, that name came <laughs> I'm not sure that we can, that, that that would be true. I, we'd have to maybe go back and look at the history of that word. This would be awfully quick for it to already be associated uh, quality with him, but I don't know, maybe. Yes? I think it's interesting, yeah. we kind of touched on this, that like God uses this as a reminder like in between chapter 24 and chapter 26 with everything, you know, he withstands from taking his own revenge and then God takes his revenge and uses it during David's weakness as a reminder for him. And like, I think that's really significant. It strengthens him for what's getting ready to happen in the next chapter. But you have to choose to listen to the reminders that God gives us. Good point. And you certainly see the mercy and patience of God. He does use Abigail and restrain David from something that would have been a really bad thing for David to do. And so... I mean, in this moment of weakness, God shores David up, and in a way that you might not have even expected. So, so you really do see God patiently working with even the weaknesses and the, the mistakes of his people, and that's an encouragement as well. Look at the, yeah, uh, but I was just uh, I was looking at how to describe the navel dying and everything, and then I was just remembering how the end of 25, just kind of toss it out there, same with, same with that. You know, was, and I think how we started this whole study, and you know, it all started with Samuel and everything, and then we just have one quick little thing. And, and I think that really exemplifies who Samuel was and what it was all about. He was just serving God. I think that's impressive that um, it wasn't a grand thing. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't about boasting himself. It wasn't about him getting glory or what he was going to remember for. He was going to serve God until he died. Yes, absolutely. And I think I may have forgotten to finish my answer on 
who wrote Samuel, but obviously the books of Samuel were not written by Samuel. Uh, you got Second Samuel uh, after he was dead. Uh, Samuel's the main character in the beginning of these books. I think that's the reason for that. We don't know who wrote them. All right, um, 39 to 44. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who hated the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal. And he has kept the servant from evil, for the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. And David sent and proposed Abigail to take her as his wife. And the servants of David had come to Abigail to come. They spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. And then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here is your maidservant, the servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail arose in haste and rode on a donkey attended by five hundred maidens. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took the hymn of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, Taltai, the son of Laish, who was from there. Well, so uh, the bottom line to this whole story is David married Abigail after the death of Nabal and ends up with a very wise wife. Obviously, David has more than one, and this mentions a couple of his other wives. Uh, but but that's, that's the uh, outcome of, of this story. Comments and questions about that? Uh, Jody. Yes, clearly. His, his uh, spirit of revenge was uh, excessive, but thankfully God restrained him from that. Yes. Yeah. It just amazes me how humble Abigail is. I cannot imagine responding to a marriage proposal by saying, yes, I'm going to come wash your servant's feet. I might say something very different from that. <laughs> 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 that would ever happen. Yeah, uh, take notice, uh, single guys. <laughs> Yeah, that is, uh, that is impressive. She is a servant. She shows that. She's got true character. Uh, very encouraging. Jake, Gio. I, I don't think that we've, we've actually even touched the hem of her garment of how good of a woman she was. Because we've talked about how she saved the drunken jerk of a husband. But, but the gentleman back here makes an excellent point. Every man is going to be wiped out. And, and look at the urgency that she seems to act and do something. And it's so important for our ladies to realize that they are vital and that they have a, a huge role. Certainly a good illustration of that, isn't it? Yeah, good point. Very good. Josh? I can't help but wonder what Abigail is thinking, and this probably doesn't have an answer, but all she knows of David is that he was going to act rashly and like wipe out her previous family. And then the next thing she basically that we know of him is he sends a marriage proposal to her. Um, well, she clearly demonstrates a lot more knowledge of David than that in what she says to him. She probably knew a lot about David, most people <laughs> would have, so that may make it a little easier. Still may have been abrupt, I don't know. Kemi? I think it's interesting in chapter 24, verse 15, when he doesn't and then he says, May the Lord be our judge, may he consider my cause and uphold it. 
Then in chapter 25, after God has taken her revenge, she says in verse 39, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause. <coughs> Good point. Yeah, thank you. Other thoughts? Cameron. Um, here it seems to be that David like rejoices when um, Nabal dies, and Jesus tells us in the New Testament to love our enemies and pray for them. And then somewhere else, I can't remember where, I believe it says that not to rejoice when enemies stumble. What do you think about that? This is God's judgment on Nabal. We do rejoice in that. That's what I think. Yes. Um, okay, in Deuteronomy 17, it talks about the king. In verse 17, it says, He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. From what we know, Saul only has one wife, but David has more than one. How do you explain that? Well, it never seems to be a very wise thing to have more than one. So I don't know that that was particularly helpful to David. We certainly see some complications in David's family as a result of that. So it'd probably been wise if he'd have listened better to that passage. Uh, certainly it wasn't as bad as Solomon, whose heart was totally turned away from God through his life. Nicole? Um, I have a question. It's obvious. But in verse 44, it talks about Saul has given Michael or whatever her name was to David. Um, and then it says, he's, was she given to two men? Uh, yes. God, Saul took her and gave her away to a second man. I believe I'm right about that. So when they, I didn't think that happened. <laughs> I think somebody, let me clarify my thinking on that. Do we know that from any other passages? Yeah, because he makes her come Well, later, yeah. Saul David's going to try to take Michael from that. That's what I thought. Yeah, that's right. Where is that? Second Timothy 3? Yeah, I think that's right. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I believe I believe I am right about Second Samuel three, um, verse fourteen. Yeah, thirteen, fourteen. So Saul had taken Michael and given her to someone else. Right. Yeah. Sure he never actually had her, but yeah, that's right. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Good comments. Good discussion. Um, let's go ahead and do the first part of chapter twenty-six before we take our break. Chapter twenty-six.